I do think the one place that people should take some or draw some hope from is the fact that there is something about the American system, and, and long may this continue, that does allow people to emerge seemingly out of nowhere to answer the needs of a particular moment. I always think it's remarkable when you look backwards at the procession of presidents and you can see for almost everyone what the defect of their predecessor was that they were chosen for. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny Burtka. Today's guest is Troy Senek, who is an author and former White House speechwriter, whose writing has appeared in outlets such as The Wall Street Journal, The LA Times, City Journal, and more. A former think tank executive, he is the co-founder of Kite and Key, a digital media company focused on public policy. He joins us today to talk about his new book, A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. Thanks for joining us today, Troy. Delighted to be with you, Johnny. Before we get to our interview, we'd like to thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Troy, congratulations on the release of your new book. Cleveland is a president that oftentimes gets overlooked. So I was wondering if you could share with us why you decided to focus in on this particular historical figure and what he means to you. It's a very good question. I should probably start with the reason that I didn't, which is that at the moment, Grover Cleveland is as much of a hot topic as Grover Cleveland has ever been, which is not saying that much, but because, or his main claim to fame is being the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms. And with the prospect that Donald Trump may do the same, people are now starting to draw analogies to Grover Cleveland. We can talk a little bit more about that later. But when I started working on this book, Donald Trump was still in the middle of his first term. So that wasn't even on the horizon. That was not the motivation for writing this. There were really three motivations. The first is somebody who cares about American history, in the history of the presidency, uh, it just struck me as a matter of sort of historical hygiene. And what I mean by that is that 45 men have been president of the United States. Cleveland is the one who throws the numbering off, of course, because we count him twice. So you've got to subtract one from whatever the number is in front of most presidents. But the relevant thing to keep in mind is that number 45. The number who have actually had eight full years in office is only 14. It's less than a third. And if we were to go through that list, almost all of them are household names, even for people who are not particularly deep in American history, with the single exception of Grover Cleveland. So I thought that was sort of a weird lacuna. Item number two was that Grover Cleveland is a president who, for people who think of themselves as conservatives or classical liberals or even some sort of neoliberal Democrats, could be a real ideological and intellectual touchstone if it weren't for the fact that he was forgotten. So in many ways, what I was trying to do here was what Amity Schles did for Calvin Coolidge when she wrote her biography of him, her excellent biography, I should add, a few years ago. And the third point, even if you have no sympathy for Grover Cleveland's ideological predilections, I thought he was an important president for Americans to remember because his entire political career is in some senses a rebuke to political cynicism. 
this is a guy who takes off starting really in the year 1881, which is the year that he turns 44 years old. And when you find Grover Cleveland in the year 1881, he is a relatively anonymous lawyer in Buffalo, New York. He has held one elected office. It was about a decade prior as the sheriff of the county. And he goes in the space of three years from anonymous lawyer to mayor of Buffalo to governor of New York to president of the United States. And he does all of this because he is such a contrast to the dominant politics of the time. This is maybe the high watermark in American political history of corruption at all, at all levels of government. And Cleveland advances through the political system because he is regarded as incorruptible. And this applies not only to the opposition Republicans, because Cleveland is a Democrat, but also to his fellow Democrats. This is a guy who really transcends party and who is regarded, particularly in his day, as one of the most moral and decent figures to ever have emerged in American politics. And at a moment when people are you know, somewhat skeptical, maybe cynical about American politics, I thought it was important to remember that part of the genius of the American system is that in moments like this, it can throw up figures like this seemingly out of nowhere. There's so much to unpack there, especially, and I, I want to focus a little bit more on that four-year period of time from 1881 to 1885, because it is just remarkable. I mean, I think of someone, you know, an, another figure like Teddy Roosevelt, who went from, you know, police commissioner to assistant secretary of the Navy to governor to president or vice president to president in a very short, compressed you know, period of time. But I think it's probably safe to say that he was more well-known than, than Cleveland, where Cleveland was actually somewhat quite obscure, at least in, in, in 1881. But I want to focus in on that sort of the ordinary quality of, of greatness that you describe very well in your introduction to the book, which I'm going to read from here. Quote, let us stipulate that Cleveland's greatness was not of the variety that sends sculptors racing for their marble. He was not a master strategist like Lincoln, a frenzied crusader like Theodore Roosevelt, or a philosopher king like Thomas Jefferson. In fact, in every sense but the literal one, Grover Cleveland was not a larger-than-life figure. He was in many ways ordinary, and that was where his greatness resided. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that ordinary looked like? Yeah, so Grover Cleveland is born in 1837 in Caldwell, New Jersey, northern New Jersey. His father is a Presbyterian minister, and it'd be slightly unfair to refer to his father as an itinerant minister, but they're moving a lot during his childhood. He leaves New Jersey by the age of about three and spends the rest of his childhood in various places around upstate New York, wherever his father has a job. And the only reason any of this is relevant is because it's important to understand that he is very much a self-made man, comes from very modest circumstances. I mean, he was the fifth of nine children. And, you know, there's always some imprecision in trying to take people's incomes from 200 years ago and figuring out what they equate to now. But his family lived off the equivalent with nine children of about $20,000 a year. Now, there were other benefits that came along with that. The father was a minister, so they, their housing was provided. They had a parsonage and things like that. It was still quite a modest upbringing. And Grover Cleveland's father dies when he's 16 years old. And the reason that this is important is that that development leads to Grover Cleveland never being able to attend college 
And because one of his brothers is in the ministry, it largely falls to Grover Cleveland to support his family, his widowed mother and his younger sisters. In fact, he has sisters that go to college when he didn't because it's his income in his young life that is going to pay for his sister's education. And comes down to New York City shortly after his father dies, takes a job teaching at a school for the blind in Manhattan, which lasts for about a year. Hates it. Hates it because the circumstances in this school are are pretty dire. I mean, it's something probably closer to what we'd now think of as an asylum than a school. And after a year of that, decides decides to go west, which at the time, not a terrible calculation if you're a young man trying to make something of yourself, but we are talking about a young man. We're talking about somebody who's 17 or 18 at this point. So his thinking around this is not always super sharp. And the reason I mentioned that is because he initially thinks he's going to go to Cleveland, Ohio, because he shares a name with it. That's at least part of the calculation. It's actually named after a distant relative of his. And he ends up in the course of that journey, stopping over in Buffalo, where he has some family, including a um, wealthy, fairly distinguished uncle by marriage, who convinces him, you don't really have a plan here. You don't know what you're going to do when you get to Ohio. Why don't you stay here in Buffalo? Do some work for me. I'll get you placed with a local law firm because Cleveland had an interest in the law. And this is how his whole journey in in Buffalo starts. So you have these very, very modest circumstances that he comes from. He's never making a lot of money. And for a good chunk of his adult life, this money is flowing back to the family that he's supporting. And he doesn't have any of the special traits that we tend to associate with great or or even merely good presidents. He's not heavily credentialed. You know, he comes from really nothing in terms of the family name. He has no higher education to speak of. He's not a terribly charismatic figure. I mean, every note of distinction about Grover Cleveland's early life is about his work ethic, which is nice, but sort of damning with faint praise if the nicest thing you can say about somebody is they put a lot of hours in. He is not a he's not an especially captivating physical specimen, particularly as he he works these long hours and continues and continues and continues to gain weight. He ends up being 275 pounds, our second heaviest president. So none of the aesthetics or acoustics, because he's not a great speaker either, that you'd associate with a distinguished American president. The thing that endears him to people and the thing that is sort of his secret weapon throughout his political career It's just there's this sense of honest dealing. There's a sense that Grover Cleveland won't color outside the lines even when he personally would benefit, even when his friends would benefit. This is a guy who puts principle above all else. That is always the central appeal of him. And by the way, I I try to be very even-handed about this in the book. This is something that is clearly very admirable about him. It is also clearly something that in many cases makes him a mediocre politician because you know, sometimes to be a good politician means having to rise above principle, right? There, there are moments where these little things that you have to do to lubricate the political system, he is almost constitutionally incapable of doing that. But he's just, as we started that with that quote that you read, the distinguishing feature about him is this kind of ordinary horse sense. This is a guy that you would put in charge of a general store, and he ends up sort of being in charge of the country in very much the same fashion. It's interesting talking about his his 
commitment to character and his integrity. He was obviously the son of a minister, as you mentioned, grew up in a very devout household. But then as an adult, I'm curious if you could talk about his religious faith or or lack thereof. What was really driving this commitment to, to principle? I'm so glad you asked that because no one seems to ask that in conversations about Grover Cleveland. And I, I don't quite understand why, because it is interesting, partially because it is somewhat elliptical, somewhat obscured from us. So yeah, as you suggest, he has precisely the kind of upbringing that you would expect a minister's son to have. Family's very devout. Their Sabbath in particular, especially by comparison to our modern standards, quite severe. You know, two services a day, all the toys get put away on Saturday night. And it's expected that when you're not in services, you'll be in sort of private religious reflection. It's interesting. So I mentioned earlier, he doesn't go to college. What I left out of that story is that uh, when he returns back to upstate New York, after leaving that teaching job in Manhattan, he is given an offer from a family friend who knows him and knows that people think highly of him to go to college fully funded if he'd be willing to follow his father into the ministry. And he turns it down. And there is no existing testimony as to why he turned it down. So we don't know if it just felt like a vocation that he didn't, he didn't hear a calling to him. We don't know if it's indicative of something deeper about his religious faith. Now, we do know that as he goes further into his life, he is not a consistent churchgoer. He really, you really only see him going to church when he goes back home and is around his mother. So you can, you can tell what the routine he's, he's playing here is. And, uh, and there are complaints about this. When he is the governor of New York, a pastor of a local church complains that he never sees Grover Cleveland in a pew on Sunday, but there are lots of stories about Grover Cleveland playing poker in the governor's mansion on Sundays. But there have been a few books that have claimed, uh, I'm not sure why, because there is no good evidence for this, that Cleveland was essentially kind of a, a founding era type deist. And I see no evidence of that, particularly as you get deeper and deeper into his life. There are more and more references in his official remarks, but especially in his private correspondence, that indicate a real and abiding faith in God, certainly what we'd call a Christian faith, but I don't know if we could call it anything more specific than that. Insofar as it it doesn't have to, it doesn't seem to have any especially distinguishing sectarian characteristics where where we could even say he's a good Presbyterian like his father his wife was we know that but in his retirement sadly his oldest daughter dies very young and this is the clearest insight we have into his religious thinking at least at the end of his life is there are lots of letters that he wrote at that time describing the depression that he's wrestling with, which is bleeding into how he thinks about his faith. He keeps saying, all I can think of is my daughter in the ground. I can't think of her in heaven. But over the course of a couple months, I mean, there's a resilience that just runs like a ribbon throughout Grover Cleveland's life. You see him slowly coming out of this, and he's giving the credit to God, that God has allowed he and his wife to now think of their daughter Ruth as being in heaven. So there's a real faith there, I don't know how consistent it is throughout his life, because particularly when he's a, a young man, uh, it just doesn't seem to be on the table. You don't see him referring to it very much. And he would not be unusual you know, to have it develop into a fuller flower later in life. But it's definitely there later in life. 
It's definitely a form of Christianity. And as I say, I don't know if we can say anything more specific about it than that based on the available evidence. Shifting gears a bit, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the background of the Democratic Party at the time. I know Cleveland was the only Democratic president between the Civil War and World War I to be elected to the presidency. What was it in his upbringing or in in Buffalo at the time that made Cleveland a Democrat? Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you asked this because the context for this is important, particularly because I'm sure a lot of our listeners may be a little confused by the idea that this 19th century Democrat is now mostly beloved by people on the right. And, and there's a reason for this. So as you say, Cleveland is the first Democrat elected president since James Buchanan in 1856. And there's not another one until Woodrow Wilson in 1912. So this is an expansive time as large as the one between the presidencies of John F. Kennedy and Donald Trump. It's a big chunk of time to only have one president from one party. Why does this happen? Well, because that period is mostly in the aftermath of the Civil War, and the Democratic Party is in quite bad odor coming out of the Civil War. They're, of of course, associated with the South and with the Confederacy and with slavery. This is where you get the phrase that you'll hear over and over again in this era of American history about the Republican Party waving the bloody shirt, reminding the voters that the Democratic Party was the party of secession. And one of the reasons that Grover Cleveland breaks through is because he is seen as a man who rises above party loyalties. I mean, he is consistently in every stop in his political career elevated to office not only by Democrats, but by a reformist contingent of Republicans. And the reason that there was such a formidable reformist contingent of Republicans is because in the aftermath of the Civil War, the Republican Party really controls everything most of the time because of this exact same dynamic around the war. And as I say in the book, they sort of succumb to the political equivalent of gout, which is to say that things are too good for them for too long. And so a lot of self-dealing goes on. A lot of cronyism goes on. There's a lot of people feathering their own nests, which creates this fissure with these sort of reform-minded Republicans who are willing to cross over for a person like Grover Cleveland. That's the context in which he operates. But the actual question that you concluded with is what makes Grover Cleveland a Democrat, which is an interesting one because he doesn't tell us. He is a, a remarkably non-introspective individual. There's not a lot of diary entries. This is not a guy who really feels an obligation to explain to you who he is and where he comes from. Makes him an interesting figure to write a biography about because he's not leaving any crumbs for you. You just kind of have to sort of suss it out. And so my response to your question can be nothing better than an educated guess, but I think it's a fairly educated guess. I think with Grover Cleveland, as with a lot of us probably, it's hard to separate where biography stops and ideology starts. And the Democratic Party of Cleveland's era, at least the faction that he belonged to, often called the Bourbon Democrats, these were Jeffersonians. These were limited government types. They were constitutionalists. They were, for the most part, laissez-faire on economics. They were anti-imperialists. So this sort of limited government sensibility, I think, graphs the best, or at least the clearest, onto this deep sense of 
uh, self-sufficiency that Grover Cleveland has. And you see it in sort of the New England lineage of his his family. These are these are not flamboyant figures. These are not these are they're very modest. They don't call a lot of attention to themselves. They really believe that you get ahead in life through hard work. I mean, the earliest records we have of anything Grover Cleveland ever said, or in this case wrote, from when he was in grade school, is him writing admiringly about people like George Washington and Andrew Jackson, who became great statesmen because they used their time wisely when they were children. I mean, there's this deep sort of Puritan sense of you got to work hard and improve yourself. And one can imagine how that graphs pretty nicely onto this sort of classical liberal strain in the Democratic Party of the time of self-sufficiency and not looking to the government as the instrument for your improvement. In terms of his political style strategy, obviously you've mentioned he, you know, was rooted out corruption, rooting out corruption, self-dealing, you know, didn't like when, when contracts were, were being given out to the highest bidder instead of the lowest bidder. I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, his tenure as, as police commissioner and and mayor and and governor, what was his approach to politics? What type of speeches did he give? I mean, you can be someone who's principled who opposes corruption, but what does that actually look like in terms of I don't know how he builds political co- coalitions or how he operates as a politician? Right. There, there's a there's a bunch of interesting questions within there. So let me give you. It's all, I guess all well and good to talk about. It. He was anti-corruption, but what what does that mean in in practice? Let me give you a few sort of representative examples that in his day went a, a long way towards convincing people of the virtues of this man. One was that when he served as sheriff in Erie County, this was a job he wasn't sure he really wanted. Uh, certainly not one that he was jockeying for, because at this point in American history, certainly in Buffalo where he was, or Erie County, I should say, where the sheriff's office was, but kind of everywhere, the sheriff's office was usually understood uh, to be something of a repository of corruption. There are a lot of things that we would look very much askance at today, like sheriffs you know, taking, taking a percentage of the revenues that came in you know, from arrests and things like this. Cleveland comes into office as sheriff. And it was understood at the time that when there were vendors who were giving supplies to the sheriff's office or whatever, there was always, to use the modern parlance, a little bit fell off the truck. And it was sort of understood that whatever the difference was, the vendor kicks a little bit back to the sheriff, everybody's happy. At Cleveland comes into office when they start getting the cordwood delivered to the sheriff's office. He himself is measuring it personally to make sure that everything is there. He, when he serves as sheriff, has to conduct, he's the only American president ever to personally conduct an execution. He conducts two of them, two hangings, both murderers. And it's interesting, this becomes a part of his identity politically later on. They refer to him as the Buffalo hangman or things like this, which is a dicey thing for your opponents to do because there is a long history in American politics that if you show somebody, somebody to be that forceful, Right or be able of marshalling that kind of aggression that can that can work in their favor just as much as it works against them. But what this sort of misses is remember at this era in American history and especially sort of preceding it, it was even worse. Public executions were considered a form of public entertainment. I mean, there are records of executions that happened in Buffalo. This is prior to Grover Cleveland's era, but 
where the attendance, the turnout of people coming to watch the executions was larger than the population of the city. I mean, that's how much of a draw these things were considered. And Cleveland, even though he is tagged with this later as a sign of his kind of coarseness and brutality, Cleveland is actually very faint-hearted about this. He really doesn't enjoy it. He loses sleep. He can't eat, which when you're looking at Grover Cleveland, I mean, that's quite an accomplishment if he's not eating, right? He goes to a doctor at least once and asks them to walk him through everything that can go wrong. But he is determined that this not be a public spectacle. So both times that Grover Cleveland presides over an execution, they actually build scaffolding around the execution site, cover it, drape it in black cloth so that there's no angle by which the public can see it. And Cleveland looks away when he actually pulls the switch. I mean, he and he had the option, probably bears noting, to pay somebody to do this for him. This is what his mother suggested to him because he went to his mother with this anxiety about it. And he felt that that was not consistent with the duty that had been placed upon him. He thought if you take that job, you have to do the most stomach-turning aspects of it. That's the obligation that you owe to the public. And it's these kinds of things that we see throughout his career. So I'll, get, I'll give you one final example of this because I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but I do think it's quite remarkable. One of the things that really wins over the people of Buffalo when he's the mayor is what seems like the utterly prosaic topic of street cleaning in the city of Buffalo. Actually quite important when we're talking about this era in American history. Urban sanitation was a vitally important issue because if you didn't do it right, you have massive disease outbreaks as cities are getting more dense, more industrialized. So the, the equivalent of the city council, they're called aldermen in Buffalo, appropriate this contract for street cleaning in the city of Buffalo. Not only do they not pick the lowest bid, they pick the highest one. And the highest one has been resubmitted at an inflated rate even higher than what it was originally submitted at, which is widely understood by everybody at this point in time to be a kickback. That extra cushion is going to the city council. Grover Cleveland vetoes this, sends a really sort of scathing veto message that wins him the popular approval of the people of Buffalo who have just gotten so tired of this form of corruption. But what's really remarkable about it is that the man who submitted this inflated bid had only a year prior been one of Grover Cleveland's clients as a lawyer. And Cleveland tells him, you have to understand, when I was your lawyer, I served your interests. I am now the mayor of the city of Buffalo. I serve the interests of the people of Buffalo. It's a small vignette, but it is really representative of the way he thought about elected office throughout his career. That's the same guy who's governor of New York. That's the same guy who's president of the United States. Huh. And did he have a sense, and I, I think it's appropriate now that we transition to his uh, election to the presidency, did he have a sense throughout this period of time that he was a great man or that he had a, a sort of a destiny as president and that these small little battles and victories were leading to the highest office in the land? No, he definitely did not. And I want to be careful about how I say this because you know, I obviously admire Grover Cleveland enough to have written this book, but I try to be very fair throughout about where he shines and where he doesn't. And there's ample material in both categories. But the more uh, admiring portraits of him often make him sound as if he had no ambition throughout his life and was just carried on this breeze up to the presidency. 
And, you know, I've worked in the White House. Anybody who pays even a little bit of attention to American politics, even though it's different in the late 19th century than it is today, nobody becomes president by accident, right? There's, there is some baseline of ambition that's there in all of them. But the degrees to which that ambition is there varies. And it's very clear to me in looking at Grover Cleveland's life that this was not the track he thought he would be on. I don't think he's actually that natural an executive, even though many of these traits make him admirable. I think he's actually a, a much more natural figure of the judiciary. He thinks like a judge. He thinks in terms of first principles. He doesn't think about how you move political coalitions around. This is, again, a thing that gets him in trouble later. And he's clearly very hesitant about his first few offices. I think what happens, and my guess would be, again, there's no good chronicle of this to tell us. My guess would be that it's at some point when he's mayor, and you see the press in Buffalo really get excited by this reformist push that he's making. I think he came into office initially as mayor thinking that he would be aided. And you see this a little bit when he's governor, too. Eventually, people are going to, he's just going to come up against so much um, hostility that this whole thing's going to fall apart. And the popular reaction is the opposite. And I think that feeling of the wind at his back is the thing that transforms him into somebody who's seriously thinking about the president of the United States. So I, I don't think he's the kind of guy who, when he's 12 years old, would have told you, I'm going to be president someday and it's going to be in this 10 year window. I, there's just none of that in him. There's clearly a moment where he starts to realize, I sort of, I fit the moment, which is really the most important thing for a president sometimes, more than talent. I fit this specific moment, which I think is really true of him. I think if you move him 10 years in one direction or 10 years in the opposite direction, you probably never hear of him. It's just how he interacts with this popular discontent, with the kind of corruption that's happening in American government. And I, the last thing I'll say on this, I should note that even when he is president, he never has those sort of grandiose, visionary pretensions that we associate with certain presidents, particularly certain 20th century presidents. It's just not how he thinks of the job. He thinks of it as being much more constrained. It's really important to him that he stays within the limits of the Constitution. And I quote late in the book, because it's from Cleveland's retirement, a friend of his saying that he just, Cleveland, I'm paraphrasing here, but Cleveland just couldn't understand that sort of visionary conception of the presidency. It would never have crossed his mind that it was his responsibility to remake America. You know, his responsibility was, in his mind, essentially administrative. It was, it was to keep the federal government running well and to be a, a bulwark for the taxpayer. That's what he thought of as his core responsibility. So what were some of the, the successes and failures of his first term in particular, as relates to, to civil service reform, what, what even did, did that mean at the time, civil service reform? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, as I, as I say in the book, one of the things that I think makes it easy to forget a figure like Grover Cleveland is that it's very hard to explain to modern day Americans what the central issues of his presidency were. It's a little strange because we can go deeper into American history. We can go back to the Civil War, the founding generation. That's all pretty clear to somebody in 2022 because the principles at work are, are so sort of fundamental. Like we can understand what those fights were. When it's Grover Cleveland and we're talking about civil service reform and military pensions and silver and the money supply, this is, you know, we all had this for a day and a half in 10th grade history. 
and we didn't understand it then, and most of us don't understand it now. Right? So your question is about civil service reform. This is a good example, right? To the extent that anybody talks about civil service reform these days, it's the idea that it's way too broad and that it protects a lot of people in the federal government who at times will either just be non-performing or will be actively undermining the president of the United States because they have protections that are uh, calibrated for people in nonpartisan positions, but they have actual policymaking power, or at least the ability to impede policymaking. It's not the case in this era. And this is a big part of the divisions within the Republican Party prior to Cleveland's. What are we going to do about this? Because there is a contingent that thinks that um, party patronage is just how you do politics. You win and your guys get the jobs. And uh, hopefully most of them do it pretty well. But if some of them don't, that's the cost of doing business. And you got to keep these people employed. And and also remember, there's a big difference between now and then. Uh, in this era, before civil service reform, it is a circular system financially, which is to say that when you make a patronage hire, Republican president comes in, all these Republicans get hired in a Republican administration. It is understood and in fact compelled that a percentage of those people's salaries goes to the party. This is how American politics is financed in this era. This is We're not talking about corporate or business interests. That comes later when this system goes away. It's all this sort of internal mechanism within the government. So civil service reform had started a few years prior to Cleveland. It actually started under his predecessor, Chester Arthur, somewhat strangely, because Arthur was known for being on the other side of that debate. But Strange things happen when you have a bad midterm election, which Chester Arthur had, so he turns on a dime and it goes in the other direction. What Cleveland does, and this is a good example of what I was saying earlier, how he has a genius for doing what he thinks is the right thing and then satisfying absolutely nobody in the process, is that he comes in and decides that the line that he is going to draw is that he is going to remove Republican office holders who he thinks are there as the result of corruption, who aren't taking their responsibilities seriously, who are just using it as a political perch. He is going to keep for the remainder of their terms Republicans who seem like they're doing fine and aren't really a problem, and then eventually replace them with his fellow Democrats. And for exceptional Republicans, he's going to keep them in office. So no one is thrilled by this, right? The Republicans don't want to see their fellow party members get thrown out. But for the Democrats, you can imagine how they think. We've been out of office for 30 years, and you're trying to find the best Republicans to retain. This leads to the, the criticism. You'll hear Democrats of this era constantly being taunted with, you got your president, but you can't get your postmaster, right? I mean, it just it's a real blow to the sort of self-esteem within the party. So he is successful on this front, on his own terms. But in terms of politics, in terms of holding the party together, boy, he's making enemies up front on his own side. In in the 1888 campaign, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why he lost and if you think his position on tariffs had anything to, to do with that. It's the central factor in my judgment. So again, just a, a quick sort of orientation here because our listeners could be forgiven for thinking, as I thought for years, particularly in my sort of first pass through American history as a young student, why did everybody care so much about tariffs in the 19th century? You just you see this over and over again. Whereas a pretty straightforward answer to that question, which is this is in, in an era prior to the income tax. I mean, there had been a, an income tax from the Civil War that had then been repealed. But in the 19th century, 
Tariffs are where the money comes from. The federal government is funded primarily through the tariff system. There's some excise taxes on things like liquor and tobacco, and there's some land sales in the West, but the lion's share of this is tariffs. So just think of tariffs as fighting over individual income tax rates today. That's why it was important, because that's that's what the stakes were. And Cleveland comes into office in his first term, determined that tariff rates need to come down. What's interesting about this, particularly in light of how we talk about tariffs now, is that in Cleveland's time, this position was considered the populist position, whereas today we think of it in the opposite direction. It was considered the populist position for a couple of reasons. One was that um, you think about the incidence of these taxes, right? Tariffs are flat rate. Everybody pays the same. So it's, it's a regressive tax. So the position of the populace was we want an income tax where it actually takes things out of people's hides based on how much they make for the tariff. And the other was the idea that it, the tariff was somewhat collusive, that business interests were working the system. It, it wasn't about this sort of detached consideration about what's best for uh, the American economy as a whole. It's which company can get in, get in there and get the tariffs they want. Cleveland pushes this in his first term unsuccessfully. And it's worth noting, this is an issue that divides the Democratic Party at this point. He hasn't won over. There's a protectionist faction that he hasn't won over and hasn't really made great strides to win over. And he decides to make his 1888 campaign entirely about this on the rationale that if you're, what's the point of being elected if you don't stand for something? This is his actual quotation on the matter. Again, admirable sentiment. Stupid politics. We have to stipulate this. The worst possible thing that you could do going into a re-election campaign is to pick to build your entire campaign around one issue that divides your party and uh, and uh, unites the opposition. And his re-election campaign in 1888, which is really badly run across the board, uh, ends up being steered mainly by two businessmen who themselves don't agree with him on this policy. There are records of Cleveland's associates saying after the fact, once he lost, I'm not sure that these guys were disappointed. These are the guys that are running his campaign. <laughs> and, and the reason that he ends up, part of the reason he ends up being able to pull off the comeback in 1892 is because in those four years that he's out of office, we get the McKinley tariff, the tariffs go significantly higher, and consumers really do start to feel the bite. So four years later, he looks visionary for having been ahead of the curve on this. But in 1888, it just confuses everybody. Nobody can understand why he's done this. And he pays the price. We have time for two more quick questions. Uh, the first one's historical, and then we, I want to bring it to the present day. Can you talk a little bit about after after four years of you know working as a lawyer in New York and doing a lot of fishing, from what I understand, and, and the, the tariff winds blowing back in his direction, what does he accomplish in his second term? Well, Grover Cleveland's second term is really quite turbulent. There's a big contrast between the first term and the second term. In the first term, you get a lot of issues that seem fairly prosaic to us, like the civil service question. I mean, there's the tariff fight. He's really concerned about military pensions, which are, again, this is the thing. It's a big expenditure at the time, but to us, it just seems entirely antique. The second term is really quite volatile. The second term you get, shortly after he comes into office, you get the Panic of 1893. That's what we call it today. At the time, they called it the Great Depression. It was the biggest depression in American history up to that point. And I will not make the listeners suffer through the intricacies of 19th century monetary policy, but suffice to say, this was all a fight over 
the relative roles of gold and silver in the money supply. That's issue one. Issue two, there's this incredible labor unrest that really peaks in 1894, the second year of his second term, with the Pullman strike. Again, one of these things, a phrase in bold that we kind of remember from our history textbooks. It's a labor dispute in Chicago over the railroads, but one that spirals to a point where what starts is a fight between railroad workers at one company, the Pullman Company, and that company itself expands to the point where it involves the entirety of the railroad industry on one side, and not only the entirety of the railroad labor pool on the other side, but a big chunk of all American labor. You are getting to the point where there are talks about nationwide walkouts. And that what starts as a relatively minor industrial conflict gets to the point where at its climax, people are legitimately concerned that the country is about to break into a, a second civil war, this time on class grounds instead of sectional grounds which is not idle exaggeration. I mean, Eugene Debs, who was the leader on the labor side and started out quite responsible and deliberate about how this was handled, is himself, by the end of it, actually threatening the civil war and saying 90% of the country is going to be arrayed against the other 10%. I wouldn't want to be on the side of the 10% if I were you. This is We've got that. We've got the Depression. Towards the end of his presidency, there are... Um, a number of foreign policy issues. Well, one of them actually starts very early in his second term and is probably the most salient one, which is that Cleveland comes into office with the Harrison administration, which occupied the four years between his two terms. Having been, I have to be careful how I say this, because it wasn't the Harrison administration's ambassador in Hawaii, who's the, who's the one who's really responsible for this, is essentially party to a coup in which the Hawaiian monarchy is overthrown. Harrison administration itself did not sanction this because like a lot of things in American history up to this point, if you're the guy out on the some distant frontier as the ambassador, you have an incredible amount of autonomy. It takes a long time for information to get back to Washington. And uh, Ambassador Stevens, which is this man's name, was interested in Hawaii being annexed by the United States, as a lot of people were at the time. And Cleveland is sort of comes into office sort of repulsed by this, uh, not at the idea of acquiring Hawaii necessarily, but the terms by which it happened, because he feels like this is a betrayal of the American character, that this is not a thing we do. We don't go into other countries and overthrow sovereign governments. So you have all these things happening on the policy side. At the same time, Grover Cleveland gets cancer during the second term has, a, has a, a tumor in the mouth and has uh, – there's an entire chapter in the book dedicated to this, but has a, a secret cancer surgery at sea that is being hidden from the public, partially because there is this economic depression going on. Again, as I said, it's about gold versus silver. We don't have to go into that. But the only important thing to know here is Cleveland's on the gold side. His vice president is on the silver side. So if the president dies of cancer, it has big implications for where the economy is going. So they don't tell anybody. And this is indicative of the sort of chaos in the in the second term. So it is a, a much livelier scene than the first term is. And one and one by the way, where his his behavior is a little bit different. He is a, a slightly more aggressive executive in the second term. He is more recognizably on the continuum with our early 20th century presidents. Not as aggressive as a Roosevelt or Wilson, but much more so in that camp in the second term, whereas in the first term, you would think of him much more closely with the sort of mid-19th century, very sort of passive presidents. 
Well, the last question I have for you, and I know we have to be careful with asking historians to predict the future, but my question for you, is it is it possible for someone like Grover Cleveland to become president again, given our assumptions and understanding of what the presidency should be today? And secondly, it's also interesting to note that he wasn't that popular at the end of his second term, but history has looked more favorably on him in retrospect. So is it also possible not only for someone like this to become president, but to actually, you know, when you're th- thinking of a, an ambitious person who aspires to the presidency, to actually get them to think beyond the popular opinion of their own era to, you know, their their legacy in, in the future, and to be willing to make those sacrifices for present day popularity for long term greatness? It's a really good question. I think it's still possible but I think it's significantly more difficult. And the reason I say that is because presidencies are not just about that factor that I mentioned earlier, how the man meets the moment. They're a lot about that, but they're also about the institutions that you construct to develop and and select presidents. So if I were to go back to the, the Trump analogy for a moment, because this is the question that people keep asking me, and this, this will loop around to, the question you're actually asking. People ask me all the all the time, can Donald Trump do what Grover Cleveland did? And I always say to them, well, yes, he could, but if he did it, he would have to do it in precisely the opposite way that Grover Cleveland did. And what I mean by that is if you're running for a third time in the year 2024, the imperatives of running for president these days are, are pretty clear. Right? You need not even necessarily a majority in your party primaries, but a, uh, a durable plurality Right, that's enough to surpass everybody else who's running against you. The math is pretty simple. Uh, not the case at all in Grover Cleveland's day. Grover Cleveland runs in a day prior to presidential primaries. So he gets a third nomination in 1892 by doing something that today would be political suicide. And even in his, in his time. Some people think it's political suicide, which is that he defies the base of his own party because these debates are happening over monetary policy in between his first and second term. The argument here is essentially that the populace want more silver in the money supply because they want inflation, because they think inflation will reduce the burden of debt on people, particularly in the South and the West, who have created these new Uh, existences on the frontier with farms or the like, a lot of whom are heavily leveraged. That's all you need to know about it. And Cleveland really disliked this policy. I think partially because he was a a good lawyer. This is the way he thought about things like a lawyer. So when you're talking about changing the base of the country's monetary system, if you're Grover Cleveland, what you're hearing is you're changing the terms in which every contract in America has been denominated up to this point. For a lawyer, this is going to drive you crazy. And he writes... Uh, an open letter during this time saying that this would be suicidal for the Democratic Party to do this. It's politically disadvantageous, but also it's wrong. We shouldn't do this. So how does this get him a third nomination? Well, when 1892 comes around and the Democrats have their convention in Chicago, there are not a lot of options on the table, and they look around and see this one guy who they think, well, okay. I mean, a lot of people probably aren't thrilled with him, but he seems like the adult in the room. He seems like the one who is not going to break the American economic system for giggles. 
And that seems like something that's viable in a general election. So you can see why, I mean, to get to your, to get to your question, why a system like that might be more likely to produce somebody who would take a slightly longer view. Is it guaranteed to? Absolutely not. There are plenty of terrible nominees, plenty of terrible presidents during this period in American history. But maybe the odds of getting a figure like that are slightly higher in that system than in this one. But I, I don't know. I mean, as you suggest, it is always folly to try and translate this stuff into predictions of what the future is going to look like. But I just I will close where I started. I, I do think the one place that people should take some or draw some hope from is the fact that there is something about the American system, and, and long may this continue, that does allow people to emerge seemingly out of nowhere to answer the needs of a particular moment. I always think it's remarkable when you look backwards at the procession of presidents and you can see for almost every one what the defect of their predecessor was that they were chosen for, right? It's always a contrast. There was something we didn't get from the last guy that this guy gives us. So I think that part of the American system endures. And it's it's always a mistake to, be, to bet on stasis in America. It, it, the system is always changing. You're always, there's always a left turn you didn't see coming. And I, I, my guess is that that will continue to, to happen the same way. Well, we'll close on that note. I feel like we could talk for hours, but that just means we need to buy your book, A Man of Iron. Uh, so thanks for joining us today, Troy. If people want to find more about your work, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Troy underscore Senek. Um, and then you can also visit the uh, the site that I run, which is not about Grover Cleveland, but is about public policy. That's kiteandkeymedia.com. Great. Well, thanks again, Troy. And thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. <laughs>